0: Whatever we value explodes. We'll try that again. Whatever we value, we will make sacrifices to get and to keep. We all know that. What we perceive is worth having, we will use either our time, our talents or treasures, or a combination of these to pursue. Advertisers were willing to bet for the Super Bowl that it was worth them spending 4 million dollars for 30 second spots to get you to value their products enough to go out and buy them. We are always counting the cost of using our money, our time, our efforts, our emotional, physical, mental energy and comfort to make decisions as to whether something is worth doing or pursuing or enduring. Whether it's investing in your marriage or in other relationships or in things you purchase or in things related to your job or your work, raising your kids, your education, Uh, whether to eat in or eat out, you're always weighing the cost-benefit. Is this worth what I'm going to pay the time, talents, and treasures that I spend to get? Do you think there's any relationship here to discipleship, being Jesus' disciple? We better pray. Father, I thank you for the way that you have arranged the morning. I thank you for the songs that we sang. It's a good desire and purpose that we would follow Jesus. How can we but want to do that? It's also good that we asked Spirit of the living God to fall fresh on us because we need your Holy Spirit to reveal to us what we sang about in that last song, the Lamb who is slain. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Jesus is the Son of God, the Lamb who is slain. Would you show us the worth and the value of Jesus this morning, and would you cause us to see how that calls us, Father, to make decisions about how we live our everyday lives as well as decisions big and small? Oh, Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts? Because this is a challenging teaching that Jesus has given to us. We need your help. I need your help. In Christ I pray, amen. So Jesus, in uh, verse 25 of of the text that we read, we see that he was getting popular, even though there was rising opposition for Jesus, toward Jesus by the religious leaders. um, In verse 25, we see that Great crowds are accompanying, accompanying him. And so with the gathering crowds, Jesus just needs to not say anything controversial or hard if he wants to keep his popularity up in the polls, right? So Jesus, come on, just say something nice to the people. You've got a crowd following you. Just say what they want to hear, right? So what does he say? Verse 26. If anyone, anyone comes to me and does not... Hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoa, wait a minute. What? He must be talking to a few extremely committed people. Can't be talking to everybody, right? Well, he said, if anyone comes to to me, if anyone comes to Jesus, anyone seeks to follow Jesus, to have a relationship with Jesus, here's what it means. What Jesus says is not just for a few who want to be extremely committed to Him; it is for anyone who wants to have life in Jesus. And He says, "If you don't, if you don't pay this cost, you cannot be my disciple." And the word disciple simply means learner; it means a follower; it means one who's a student. And it's it's the word for Christian in the Book of Acts, the history book of the church. Uh, dozens and dozens of times, all the Christians are called disciples. So disciple is not a special separate class of of extremely committed Christian. It is if you are a believer in Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a Christian, you are a disciple. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying, if anyone comes to me and does not value me above everybody else that I might love, then he cannot be my disciple. Why on earth would Jesus have such a hard requirement for those who come to him and follow him? What about family values? Isn't the problem that we don't love our husbands and wives enough? Or our kids? Does Jesus actually approve of wife and husband haters? Is he overturning the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother? And what's he saying about hating our own lives? When we, is he most happy when we say and mean, I hate my life? Is that what Jesus is after here? If we would come to Jesus as his disciples, in other words, what he's saying is he gets a clear first in our lives. He gets our highest loyalty. If we have come to Jesus, our love and commitment to him should be clearly supreme over even our legitimate love for family, for spouse, for parents, children, and our own lives. Superior love for Jesus can make love for others look like hate. Now, when Jesus uses that word hate, He's not saying that we should have emotional ill will or despite for our families or even ourselves. He's saying that unless we make decisions and live for Jesus in ways that show allegiance to Him above every other relationship, we cannot be His disciple. In other words, he's saying if we don't make decisions and make priorities that value Him and His ways above all other claims, we cannot be His disciple because others will hold the supremacy Others will have our loyalty that trumps loyalty to Jesus. Now think about marriage, what we say in uh, like traditional marriage ceremony. We say words something like this. Forsaking all others, be faithful only to her or to him. Or forsaking all others, keep yourself only for her as long as you both shall live. Does that mean that the married couple doesn't have any relationship with anyone else? You're forsaking everybody you're turning your back completely on everybody. You don't love anybody else. You're only exclusively dealing with one another and nobody else. Of course not. That's not what that means. What it does mean is that you have a supreme commitment to each other that, can, that cannot be shared with anyone else. You sacrifice for one another in a way that you don't sacrifice for anybody else. Your marriage is the priority relationship that you don't let others compromise or violate. So just as all forsaking all others in marriage doesn't mean you don't do things in love for others, so keeping Jesus as a supreme love, being supremely loyal to him, doesn't mean that you actually despise and ignore your family and others. It means as his disciple, he gets your clearly your highest love, your supreme loyalty. I think of our friends, my friends, and becoming our friends, the Pringles, Dan and Tara, Uh, who are now in Spain, serving North Africa and Spain with Mission Aviation Fellowship. How when they first went to the mission field, about 10 years ago, they went to Afghanistan, to Kabul. And they took their four little children with them. Now, that is a dangerous place, as you know. And it's also uh, taking them away from their grandparents and their friends and, and the community that they're used to. Does that mean that they just hate their kids? I had never known a family that loved their kids the way the Pringles have. They really loved their kids. But they loved Jesus so much that they've obeyed his call for them to go to Afghanistan and now to Spain. In a culture which, in Jesus' culture in his day, loyalty to family was supreme, a choice to be Jesus' disciple could alienate a person from his family. Just as today in, in some Jewish families or as well as in other religions and cultures, there's a girl uh, named Nagma who lived in Iran. There's a war between Iran and Iraq, forced her family to flee Iran from for California, which is worse, Iran or California? I won't no, no prejudice. Sorry, sorry. California jab there. We love people from California. They just need Jesus. So do we. At age nine, she and her twin brother heard the gospel and became Christians against their parents' wishes. Uh, the parents attempted to squelch their new faith, took away their Bibles and moved to Boise, Idaho, where they thought maybe they could get away from Christians in Boise, Idaho. Yeah um, So what happened is, 11 years later, her parents turned to Christ too. Now, it was Nagma and her brother, did they hate their parents? No, they loved their parents but they loved Jesus more and by loving Jesus more they loved their parents enough to display for them the worth of following Jesus. And that wasn't a guarantee they would turn to Christ but they did. So loving Jesus more allows you actually to love others more but you must love Jesus more in order to love them the way God wants us to love them. So just a question. I can't get specific for any of us but just a question. Where are you and I Where have you and I had to choose to value Christ above comfort or worldly values in your family? Just a question for you to think about. Where have we had to do that? And are you still struggling with that? And the last phrase that Jesus mentions in here, in in, uh, verse 26, is and even hating your own life. Do we literally despise ourselves for the sake of Jesus? No, once again, we're not talking about emotional hatred. I hate my life, I hate myself. That's not what he's asking us to do. But he's asking us to be willing to sacrifice comfort and conveniences for the worth of allegiance to Christ. So, for example, a person who goes into military service, it's a person who goes into the military, um, put themselves in harm's way, potentially going into battle because they hate themselves. No, it's because he or she is willing to endure discomfort and risk his life for the loyalty to To country for freedom and for a cause greater than himself. So that whole first point was valuing Jesus above people, above people, even the people that we love. And then in verse 27, Jesus brings up another point that ties into this hating your own life. He says in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In other words, we value Jesus above personal preservation and comfort. You know, we're so used to crosses displayed on, as jewelry or on churches, we'd have no concept as to how, um, how radical this was, how hard it was for people to hear these words, how shocking it was. Sometimes we use the phrase, we all have our crosses to bear to refer to a challenge that we're going through, a hard time we're going through, or uh, our in-laws. <laughs> a hard relationship, put it that way. I have great in-laws, by the way. To bear one's own cross... Meant to carry the means of one's own death sentence, one's own execution. Probably you've heard enough teaching over the years, some the crucifixion was the worst form of capital punishment. It is worse than uh, lethal injection or electric chair is today because of the intense suffering, the long drawn out suffocation and bleeding, and, and that was a part of that slow, painful death. But Jesus is saying, You're not ready to live for Him. If you're not ready to die for him. In fact, some missionaries of, of old uh, used to pick, pack their belongings in coffins as they were ready to lay down their lives to get the gospel to those who had no access to it. Along with the cross being an instrument of execution was the rejection and shame that went with the execution. The lowest of criminals, enemies, and traitors to the state were crucified. It was a public display of rejection and shame as victims were crucified naked and nearly so, or nearly so, dying a slow, torturous death, as we mentioned. But short of being physically executed for being Jesus' disciples, bearing one's cross means willingness to suffer exclusion and rejection and persecution for the name of Christ. A man named Saeed Abedini was once a radical Muslim in Iran, but after his conversion to Christ, he channeled his passion toward gospel ministry. He went out to the streets sharing the gospel and launched house, house churches. Underground house churches were growing rapidly, and within a few years, it had grown to a few thousand converts. Nagma, we mentioned Nagma a little bit ago. She was the one who went to California and then to Idaho, and her parents came to Christ. She moved from Iran. Nagma, uh, meanwhile, goes back to Iran in 2001. She meets Saeed in a church when he was pastoring an underground church, and they were married in 2004. And because of his activity, Saeed had been arrested several times but would always be released. Saeed and Nagma were arrested five times together. In 2005, they fled Iran. Despite leaving Iran, they never lost their passion to see Iranians come to know Jesus. Saeed wanted to serve uh, the people of Iran, and the intelligence police of Iran said... He could continue to visit as long as he did not engage the house church movement again. So after much prayer, Saeed returned to Iran with the assistance and blessing of the Iranian government to build an orphanage that he and Nagma had started back in 2009. But then he was arrested and sentenced for undermining the national security of Iran. He was placed under house arrest in July of 2012. And then on September 26, 2012, while waiting on a call from officials about a potential hearing, he was, mentioned, he was met instead by a violent house raid. Since then, Saeed's parents have been allowed to visit him. He's in, he's in the worst, most harsh prison in Iran. And they say his condition is failing, and prison doctors say he needs surgery. He's suffering from internal bleeding from earlier beatings as they were trying to get him to deny his faith. He's been fainting and sick, his wife says. In spite of all this, he keeps sharing his faith. Now, most of us may never encounter that kind of persecution for our faith. But remember, Jesus says, whoever doesn't bear his own cross, whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So this isn't a unique requirement for a few rare people on on the earth. It is... For whoever would be his disciple, who would ever follow him, must bear his own cross. So, what this means is I must count myself as dead to self saturated, self serving living in a culture that says it's all about you. And what we find out in being Jesus' disciple, it's really all about Jesus. I don't choose comfort over Christ. Jesus determines everything about me. That's what this is saying. Everything in my life is determined by Jesus by how He impacts my life, by what He's done for me, by, how, by what I owe to Him. Not that I pay Him back for His grace, but because He is worth following, no matter what the cost. It means I die to my own agenda and live for Jesus' agenda. So that caused me to ask this question. Do you and I submit our plans to Jesus, or do you assume He is to fulfill our plans? Do we submit our plans to Jesus, or do we assume He is to fulfill our plans? Just another question. What ways do you have in your life to be identified with Jesus? What circumstances are we in where we have opportunity to express our loyalty to Jesus? It may, be, it may mean obeying the will of Christ in your marriage or your parenting, how you honor Christ and his gospel at school or your work or business, how you give counsel to a friend who is making bad choices, How you handle an irreconciled relationship? Sometimes the mention of Jesus other than as a swear word gets you mocked or thought weird. Have you noticed that? Where are you and I risking rejection for speaking for Christ, living for Christ, or advancing the gospel of Christ? Where are you and I risking rejection for Christ? Jesus then, in verses 28 to 32, gives a couple of illustrations to show that he's not uh, hiding the cost of discipleship. He tells us up front, once we bought a used car for $1,000, we thought we were getting a good deal. Until a few years later, we discovered we, we had spent about four times, five times that much to keep the car running. Now, the people who sold it to us didn't know that, but if we had known the cost up front, we would have never bought the car. Jesus is saying, I'm telling you up front, everybody... Must pay a cost to be my disciple. So he's being upfront. So he gives a couple of illustrations that show that. Yes, Jesus, will, Jesus pays the price for our sins in his death on the cross. So salvation is free. We can't earn it, we don't deserve it, we can't make it ours by, by what we do. But the faith through which we receive Jesus will be sorely tested as the world, our own remaining sinfulness, which we have and the devil will be no friendlier to us than Jesus. Jesus says, consider what you're getting into. He gives two illustrations. One's building a tower. One is a king and his army. He says, of building a tower, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish... All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. And then, second illustration, a king and his army. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, what's Jesus telling us to do by, this, by these two illustrations. If I assess my ability to follow Christ, I come up with I don't have it. Uh, in other words, the truth is we don't have what it takes to be Jesus, Jesus' disciples. We are too weak. We're too sinful. We're too self-centered. We're too scared. We're too people-pleasing. We're too comfort-seeking. At least I am. I don't know about you. Maybe you all have it down. Now the reality is none of us Counting the cost doesn't mean I look at myself and say, Yep, I've got what it takes. What an assessment will show is my only hope for successfully being Jesus' disciple is Jesus Himself, right? Only Jesus can help me be his disciple. Only he can rescue me from my hatred of being his disciple. And so the question for us is, in terms of counting the cost, is knowing that there is one to pay, and is I'm asking myself this question. Is Jesus worth trusting and treasuring? Is he worth the cost of being his disciple, no matter what pain I have to face? And in Jesus' day, the signs that they had that he was worth it were his teaching and his miracles—casting out demons, uh, healing people by thousands. They had enough evidence to say, "Yep, this guy's worth following." We have just that much more because of his death on the cross for all of the sins of all who believe in him and his resurrection. We have clear evidence that Jesus is worth trusting and treasuring. But I have to ask myself, do I really believe that enough to follow him? And then Jesus, in verse 33, lays down a third principle. It's not only we value Jesus over all people, even people we love, or we value Jesus over personal preservation. We value Jesus over possessions. That's what he says in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So to live as Jesus' disciple, I must value following him more than everything I have. More than all my stuff. Nothing I have is mine. I'm The two-year-old that says mine, I can't carry that on as a 52-year-old. I can't say it's all mine I give up all the rights to all I have put it all on the table for Jesus to do with as he pleases and again this is do I trust him for that do I trust him is he worth following if I have to do that I'm just the manager of my stuff I don't own it if I can use it for honoring and serving Jesus good if I value it more than following Jesus renounce it give it up make a radical break what am I attached to more than Jesus? What am I attached to more than Jesus? Let's take an inventory money, cars, television, maybe not the television, but the shows I like, laptop, tablet, smartphone. You say, so far I don't have any of those things. Social media, hobbies, vacations, iPod, house, and I hate to say this, but books, e readers, jewelry, sporting equipment, money, coffee money, sports. Is there anything I love more than Jesus? Anything that I'm more devoted to? Anything that I'm not willing to put on the table for Jesus to use as he pleases? Whether it's to take it or use it for his glory. And then Jesus closes by giving us another illustration about salt Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Salt had several uses in their day. Jesus focuses on the seasoning function, that's the one we're more accustomed to. It gives flavor to things. What good is salt if it loses its taste? Actually, could it lose its taste? Well, Jesus could have did, just been give, giving this as an illustration, whether it does or doesn't. But there was a situation where the salt that they got in Palestine came from the Dead Sea and contained some elements called carnalite and gypsum. If carelessly processed, it would become, the salt would become tasteless or poor tasting. That salt was of little or no use. It couldn't be useful for, either for killing weeds, for the soil, or for enriching manure, for enhanced fertilizing. I looked that up. What does it have to do with Manure. That's something I got hung up on. So here's what I found out. Salt can enrich manure pile. Hey, if this is the most encouraging thing you've heard today, great. By converting the ammonia that would be released in gaseous form into two solid components, carbonate of soda and myriad of ammonia, both useful to plant growth. So when you go home today, salt your manure pile. If you don't obey anything else out of this text. So those who come to Christ but who don't value him above all relationships and things, those who come to Christ but who don't value him above all people, personal preservation and possessions, are useless for either dirt or dung. We're just useless. And really, if we profess Jesus and don't live distinctly for him, we are at best redundant in the world, and actually worse, for we present a false picture of him, that is of his value and worth. Since Saeed Abedini's arrest and imprisonment in 2012, his wife, Nagma, has had the opportunity to share his story to thousands of people in more than 196 countries. In the process, Nagma has found a peace that transcends all understanding, she says. She says, I felt the Lord say, get up. I'm going to use this for my gospel. She says, I couldn't see how the Lord would use this for good. I just wanted to pray it away. Have you ever done that? God, just take it away. Let's be done with it. Meanwhile, God has other purposes, bigger than us. So she says, God has proven himself faithful. She has seen more than 30 people come to Christ. And she has peace and joy that now no one can take from her. She says, I discovered the reality of Jesus. I discovered the reality of Jesus. That reminds me of what Paul says in our closing text from Philippians 3, 7 to 10. For Paul said these words, wrote these words to the Philippian church. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. You see, that's what Nagma said. I discovered the reality of Jesus. He himself, not even the things he does for me, but he himself was so worth it that he's worth everything I've gone through and more. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ. I want to know that. I want to buy into that. I want that text to be mine. The Surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He's worth losing to gain Christ. Losing stuff. Losing things. That's what Paul says. Surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Literally, dung. That's what that word means. So we're on dung again. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, there is again, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. And then later, I don't have this up on the screen, but Paul ties that in, that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul says we are counted righteous in Christ by faith only, not by anything we do, not, not any sacrifices we make. However, but he also says the character of that faith is that it counts everything as loss in comparison to gaining Christ. The faith that we follow Christ with is a faith that trusts and treasures Christ so that we'll be willing to sacrifice and suffer because we know he's worth sacrificing and suffering for. It's not that God constantly calls us to do that all the time, 24 hours a day, our whole lives. He's, he's good and he's kind. He gives us rest and respite. But any cost we pay for the following of Christ is worth it. And so what does it mean for Harvest Community Church? I'll just mention a couple things here, then uh, our brother Matt's going to come up and and share some some thoughts with you. Uh, One, as we choose loyalty and allegiance allegiance to Jesus as individuals and families, we impact the church in ways obvious and not so obvious. As I see and become aware of how how you sacrifice because you value Christ, That convicts and encourages me to do it in my life. So, as you trust and treasure Christ in suffering and obedience and in in carrying out his mission, then that encourages others to do that. And it affects in ways that we don't even know that Jesus takes it and he uses it to impact the whole church community. And then, secondly, we need to pursue mercy and mission works in Jesus' name that require all of his sacrificing or groups of his sacrificing together that we can't do alone. So we're talking about Stories Week for the high school group, Young Life, track, Teen Reach Adventure Camp, that's what track is. It's um, ministry to, um, uh, yes, foster kids. Yeah, I was trying to think of a P word, foster kids. And uh, also what we're doing in India, and we're just on the learning edge of what we're doing there. So just mentioning those things, we must continue to pursue Christ's mission bigger than ourselves.